Well, you can take your Bibles and open up to a new book, which is exciting this morning, to the Gospel of John. Our goal will be to introduce it, kind of get into the beginning of the prologue, which we're going to read together here now. So you can open up to John chapter 1. The prologue, or as you think of the whole book, I think really, if we're moving towards, and spoiler alert, moving towards belief with the content of belief in something, belief in that Jesus Christ is not just historical, but that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. This would be the foundation of that belief. It's built on these first 18 verses, which are a unit. And so I thought, though, with introducing the book, talking a little bit about the author, which we know more than maybe some because we just did Revelation. Um, But I thought it'd be good to just chunk it a little bit and look at those first five verses, which are well known and are completely jammed, packed full of theological truth. But I want you also to understand that verses 1 through 18 are a unit. This is a movement. In fact, there are those who have kind of put it together in a way in which it's actually kind of a poetic structure, which is interesting, um, where you even see, say, verse 1, you see the word with God, and then you go down to verse 18, and then you have the word with God, and there actually is a lot of symmetry to it. So just because we're going to cover the first five verses, don't uh, think it's independent of really the rest. And then sometimes as we get into verses, you can dive and you can get lost in those trees and forget that there's something bigger going on. And so hopefully that'll be this morning to get something big going on, not just in the first 18 verses, but in all of the gospel of John. So look with me, John chapter one, and I'll read through those 18 verses and kind of even see what things he highlights and then re-highlights as we go through. But he begins his gospel in a unique way. There's no manger, there's no star, There's no wise men. There is the beginning. Just like Genesis 1-1, John begins there, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overtake it. There was a man having been sent from God, whose name was John. And he came as a witness to bear witness about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness to or about the light. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens everyone. He was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. He came to what was his own and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And John bore witness about him and cried about saying, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me has been ahead of me for he existed before me. See kind of that again, dealing with the same topics as those first five verses. We're gonna see it again more next week. But that idea of emphasizing the existence before, that's what John sees. That's what he wants to emphasize that Christ was not, did not come into existence at his human birth, but he's always existed. For why? Verse 16, of his fullness we have all received and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. 
the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Father, as we come to this amazing testimony, the gospel according to John, encourage us as we're reminded of the basic tenets of our faith, of Christ and who he is and the implications that he is not just a man born in a manger, but that he is God incarnate, existing even before creation itself. Let us see what is uniquely given here in John's account, even over the other three gospels. And Lord, may we ultimately have a higher view of who you are through seeing and glorifying your son, Christ, as we look to this great book. We just pray this in your son's name. Amen. Well, as we draw our attention to this great book, I can't help but as I've studied, be so impressed at the precise nature of the gospel of John. The way John writes, it's a complex book with complex ideas. We might dive into those a little bit more next week, but obviously you're talking about the nature of God and the Trinity itself. And I can remember asking my mom that question probably around six, explain the Trinity to me. And she did their best. She tried to give me an analogy, but we won't give any analogies because they all break down. But yet, even though it's complex and there's depth, it's simple. And he's driving to a simple goal, accenting the deity of Christ and pushing you towards a single action. So this isn't just a sermon that is out there for you to, oh, this is what I need to know. This is a theology class. So we're going to use big words. And I'm a fan of big words. I had an English teacher as a junior in high school who told me that you need complex words to communicate complex ideas. And I've always, it's always stuck with me. So if you don't know what omniscience or omnipotent means, it's okay. We can learn those things, but they communicate in a really precise package, massive amounts about who God is. And then of course, it's gonna help us if that's who he is. Part of that answer is if he's like no one else, then we're not all-powerful and all-knowing and all of those things. But he does all of those complex ideas and he packages them in this simple motion and movement to belief. And really pushing you to ask a question, is the life, is the testimony of the life of Jesus worthy of your belief? Worthy of your trust? Worthy of your faith? You think of the idea of worthy of trust. Is this person trustworthy? We just kind of assume things on a daily basis, but every day we have decisions that we make that we're gonna decide is a person or is the, say an object, is it trustworthy? On the silly end of the scale, I have some of my grandpa's old furniture and there's some fold-out chairs that are not trustworthy. They probably should be thrown away. I know if I'm gonna sit, I'm not sure it's gonna hold me. Think about the things we do each morning I trust that my car is going to get me to work and I make plans according to the rest of the day based on those things. When I go to the bank, for those of you who still write checks, I have a check, I deposit a check. I somehow magically hope, and I don't even know how it all happens, but I give them a check and they scan it. And I hope when I get home and I check my computer that that money's in the bank. There's actually more trust going on there than probably we realize when we do that. 
For those who don't use checks and you maybe use an app like Venmo, even more trust is at place, right? Someone comes over and buys something um, from you and they say, oh yeah, I'm just going to put your email in it. Here, I paid you, right? You're going, well, how can I trust? And we're trusting all of these systems and putting our faith in them that everything's going to work according to plan so that what you expect, which is to get paid, actually happens. Perhaps even more so, you start to, not to, you know, tap into our fears, but you, you, you trust in, say, where we put our money long-term, where you put your retirement. You're, you're trusting in, if you put anything in, whether it's real estate or investments, you're kind of trusting that the American economy doesn't implode, right? Oh, that probably won't happen. It probably won't happen, but it could happen, right? It's not absolutely trustworthy, as Warren Buffett seems to always remind everyone. It's probably the most trustworthy. It is the most trustworthy economy in the world, but it's not perfect, not completely trustworthy. Our nature, human beings that we are, is one of dependence. Our nature is having to trust in others and other things to accomplish or do anything. You're trusting that food, if you put a seed in the ground, is going to grow. Maybe you don't do it because we're not all farmers, but some farmers trusting that the rain comes and that it grows and that it yields food that we can then go buy and consume. We have to trust in these things just to live day to day, to work any level of economy. For you to do your job, you have to trust other people. You really, as much as we like to think, we can be completely independent individuals. We really can't. Even if you think, well, I can isolate myself in my home, you still are going to have to, maybe if you get the groceries delivered from somebody else, they still have to show up at the grocery store to get to your house. As the quote, the famous quote is, the best of men are men at best. Wouldn't it be amazing if you could trust in someone who wasn't dependent, who was outside of those things, who was completely independent, self-contained, self-sustaining, self-existent, one who is all those big words, omniscient, all-knowing, omnipotent, all-powerful, omnipresent, present everywhere, including here this morning, immutable, unchanging, sovereign, in complete control and glorious. Wouldn't that one be worthy of worship? You can't help but really read any of the scriptures, but especially you get into John, and I thought a lot about John here in relation to his later, the book of Revelation, and you find yourself right in chapter four and chapter five, that worthy is the lamb. He is the one who is worthy because of who he is, because of what he's gonna argue in the foundation of these chapters, which is gonna be really introducing all of the concepts for the rest of the book. Even this idea of witness and light. Life. The word, all these things are going to get fleshed out through his life and ministry. We're going to see it over and over again and see that he is going to be the one. And John's going to show us that there is one who is worthy of your trust, of your belief. So I said, we're going to look here this morning first at an outline um, or background information of the gospel of John and then dive into the first five verses of the prologue. If you know me at all, uh, the typical way, this is not new to me, this is not original to me, but I like to look at a book as I want to look at the internal evidence. And by that, I mean, I want to look at the gospel of John as the gospel of John first. Then I want to see what the rest of scripture has to say. And then I want to go see what other good and godly men have said in the past and go to commentaries. But on the most basic line, I think it's helpful for us that we need to have a grasp that'll help us understand 
are these kind of five basic things we have talked about a lot of times in the D groups with who is the author and who is the audience. Sometimes you get a lot of information, probably the least here about audience. Why was it written? What was the occasion? What's the purpose of the book? And ultimately, what is that central theme or idea that everything is built around? And so firstly, you think of who is the author? Now, there are some who look and you have a title in your Bible, the gospel according to John. And every manuscript we have has that, at least the complete ones or the beginning ones, have according to John. So you could say, just like any letter, John signed it, case over. But we don't know if that was originally on that letter. And so we're left to trust the kind of internal evidence. And you look and you say, who wrote this? Well, clearly, if you look at the nature and a lot of the outlining goes around the feasts of Jewish festivals, it seems to be a Palestinian Jew who wrote this. Just looking at the text, it clearly is one who says, I'm a eyewitness, I was there, which makes sense from even the beginning, verse 35, there's two of his disciples, like James and John there, from even perhaps a disciple of John the Baptist, John here, the son of Zebedee. But even more so towards the end, it's communicated that he's the one, that he refers to himself as the one that Jesus loved, the disciple whom Jesus loved, who leans against Christ at the Passover and think of the Lord's Supper, the thing we'll even celebrate this morning. So I don't think it's difficult to look here and to see John as the clear author of the book. Well, who was he? He is one of the sons of thunder, the sons of Zebedee, John and James. But we know of that, and we're not gonna look at all the places of the other gospels to fill out some of that information, but it is to say he was likely a, not religious, but more of a political zealot, which I grant you, if you look at Judaism in that day, they, they kind of intertwine a little bit more than we would quite think, but they were passionate about their nation and, and aggressive about it. Hence the sons of thunder. He probably wrote this letter around 85 or 90, depending on, maybe you guys have a study Bob and you can kind of look there. But I think earlier than Revelation, and probably while being an elder and pastoring at Ephesus just before his exile to Revelation. And where that's helpful and that's important is because you have an aging John. And if that's true and he has access to the other gospels, then I think it would make sense because when you look at the gospel of John and you lay it over Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it's fascinating. 90% of the gospel of John is unique. You go, why in the world in these first five verses does he look at a theology? Well, again, it's probably because he's answering some questions to people. And I think even just if you want to, we don't know for sure, but if I look at the context or the, the, the content of John and you go, why so much emphasis on the deity of Christ? It seems clear to me he is trying to at least answer some questions. But is Christ truly the son of God? Which of course he's affirming absolutely yes. But he also seems to feel comfortable with the account of Jesus being born in a manger, the account of Matthew, the gospel to the Jews has been given and he doesn't rehash those things. Now there's obviously some crossover, obviously the, the important side of his ministry and his death and his resurrection, but much of this is unique, 90% unique to this. I think you get to John at the end of his life at Ephesus and perhaps the people want him to give his account, perhaps he wants to give his account and perhaps even he's seeing an issue with People 
arguing over, is Christ just a man or is he fully God? And so he writes this gospel. And so you think of the occasion, I used to go, that's a little conjecture, but what's the need? That's when I think of occasion. What is the need for this gospel? Again, it's unique contribution. It's there, but the spirit, more importantly, inspired him to write this account and write it before the exile takes place in his own life. So there you have who John is a little bit, who he's writing to, or I guess the occasion of it. And then who's he writing? You think about audience. It appears to be a broader audience. In fact, if you think of the purpose statement, which we'll talk about in a moment, the audience, whoever it is, and probably more likely Gentile than Jewish, but I don't think exclusive. He's writing from Ephesus, perhaps to, you think of Ephesus, Asia Minor. But every, either way you look at it, it is meant to be evangelistic. That's how I think of the audience here. It's it's clearly an audience that needs to progressively move from some type of superficial faith to saving faith. We see that in our culture today. And I don't want you just to believe in the historic Jesus. I don't want you just to believe in some of the things he's done, but a true saving faith and trust in who he is. Not only man, fully man, but God incarnate, fully God, fully Man, and so in John 20, verse 31, you have this large purpose statement, which again, looks at this audience, I think, as they're ones who need to hear this so they might believe, so they might have life. And it says this, that these, John says towards the end of his gospel, have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Well, these, you can kind of just assume it's, the previous 19 chapters, right? But even more so, you're gonna see the structure of the book that these are the miracles and the signs that he is fully God. Because every time you see his, not only his nature, but but his character really expressed in all of those seven miracles and signs that are highlighted throughout the gospel of John. And it's explicit here that he wants to show you all of these things so that it moves you towards belief and trust. And not just in anything, because belief is about content. Believe what? That Jesus, not just that he was historic, but that he is the son of God, that he's the Christ, which is the Greek term for he's the Messiah, the savior, the son of God. And he wants this for you that, because if you believe that, then he says, you may have life in his name, which going all the way back to, which we're gonna get there in a moment, in him was life. And it wasn't just him being self-existent, Life in himself, which is true, but his desire to give life to his people. How does he do it? He does it through his sacrifice on the cross. His purpose is clearly, yes, to design, to present orthodox theology. We need to know rightly who Christ is. How is he fully God and fully man? Well, it's described here as orthodox as it comes, but also he wants to inspire people to believe and have faith that they might have life in him. One commentator put this way, thinking of belief, that if you come to this book as a Christian, I understand that you have put your faith and trust in Christ, but if you've come, maybe as this is originally written and you've heard a little bit about Christianity, one commentator made it this point. He said, there is, quote, strong evidence in John's gospel to indicate that belief is progressive. That is, there's a wholeness of accepting that you're going to read from the beginning to the end. So it doesn't necessarily give all you need to know here, but moves you along and calls you towards saving faith. He says there's strong evidence in John's gospel to indicate that belief is progressive. 
This is not the, to discount the significance of a point in time decision to trust Christ. Yet from John's viewpoint, belief does not necessarily take place instantaneously, but is aroused and nurtured and strengthened and confirmed. Of course, you look at the narrative nature, the story of the gospel of John, and that's what they're kind of understanding. You see the disciples, they start following him and you have very beginning here that John the Baptist is saying, behold, you are the lamb of God. But of course, in other accounts, you have even John the Baptist having questions about, are you really one or are we expecting another? And there is a movement here, probably more than any time in history, this transition period from say Old Testament saints to the new, new covenant but we understand that there is kind of a movement where you understand some things and you trust things and you thought you understood it, but you grow in your understanding and you more fully understand what it is to trust in the Lord. The best example I have that is of the nature of love. If you had asked me when I got married, do I love my wife? I would have said, of course, that's why I'm getting married. That's why I asked her to marry me because I love my wife. And now there's, we've married 13 years. I look back and I go, did I know what love is? Kind of. I think I wouldn't be lying to you if 13 years ago I said, yes, but there's a, a growth and understanding of what that means. The same thing here when it, you understand as a believer that what is it to believe and trust in Christ? Say my understanding as a five-year-old, I wanna trust in his work so that I don't have to spend an eternity in hell apart from him. That's basic, but it's true. It's enough to have saving faith, but there is even a movement of intimacy of going, oh, I have to trust him for everything. And there's depth that grows over time because you're gonna see in the gospel of John, there's gonna be belief, but it, some of it is going to be superficial. And of course we know from other accounts as well, say like uh, we're gonna get here in John chapter six, where the crowds are big and Jesus does the most Anti-church growth thing ever, right? He preaches it even harder truth in John 6 and they all leave and he looks at his disciples and he says, are you gonna leave as well? Well, those people believed in his miracles, but they didn't have a saving faith and the true content that Christ is fully God. So I think John 20 verse 31 is helpful because if you are studying your Bible and you're looking through books of the Bible and you go, what's the purpose of that book? Every once in a while, those purpose statements are implicit. And by that, I mean, they're not stated plainly. And you gotta go do some work. That's hard. I don't like that. I, don't, I like when it's really clear. And I think John 20, 31 is a very clear purpose statement. So what is that purpose? You might believe what in what? The content that Jesus is the son of God, Christ, the son of God. But then what is this idea? What is the, the thing that ties everything together? What is the glue throughout the gospel of John? It's this idea, this central theme of belief, which of course, belief with content, that everything is built around moving you towards belief. Some people have called this the gospel of belief. You're going to see over and over again, starting in verse 12, belief, believe in his name. And it's not going to let up the pedal till you get to the very end and say, this is where I am pushing you. Everything revolves around this idea of belief in the deity of Jesus. That word in the Greek, uh, pastuo, is used 98 times, 98 times that word appears. There's a sense in which you could say, again, this is the gospel of belief, but John sharpens his pen a little bit more than that and wants to communicate the content of that belief. 
I got this from, for those who are interested, actually, I found this a helpful commentary. Uh, Carl Laney has a helpful commentary from the early 90s on John. And I like this outline probably better than any of the other outlines I saw. So if you want it, uh, you can write really fast, take a picture. Or if you want it, I can email it as well. But you think of the, how does that theme work itself out? I think that's why I like it. In fact, I would probably amend number one, which is classically known as the prologue, which is just, say, the beginning of anything, you know, give you the basics before it moves into the beginning of a story or a book. I probably would amend that and say this is number one is the foundation of belief and then you'd get your alliteration. So there you go. Number one, the foundation of belief. But you're looking at these first 18 verses, which we'll start this morning and then we'll finish next week. Then you're going to see the beginnings of belief with the disciples, chapters one through chapter four. You're going to see that belief develop and grow in them through five through 12. Of course, you're going to see people walk away and the disciples say, where else? You have the words of life, right? Because life is in him, chapter one, verse four. So it's developed. It's strengthened in verse 13 through 17. And then you're going to see this reality of a consummation of what does unbelief lead to? Well, ultimately, it's going to lead them to not believe the words of Christ. And it's going to lead to them organizing, I guess, under God's sovereign control, but the death, the execution of Christ. You're going to see the confirmation of belief in the resurrection. And then lastly, the responsibility of belief. If I believe, what next? And so John in that way encompasses everything. And that's why I like this outline probably better than the other ones I've I've seen. It's just, it all goes right off of that central theme of belief. Because that's where clearly John 20, verse 31, we are headed is you better trust, believe, have faith in Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. Well, with that introduction, let's dive into the prologue. So go back to chapter one and look at these first five verses, which begin, again, they're a unit part of the first 18 verses, the foundation of belief. Everything in these first five verses, I think, is defined by relationships. Overall, this 18 verses, it really could say is a summary of the book. They're going to declare Jesus' deity, his incarnation, his mission. Verse 12, as many as received him, they, them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. This is why he has come. He might save his people from their sin. We saw in the way Matthew communicates it. He's going to introduce key concepts, words. The word here, which is used three times in verse one. Life, light. That's just in verse one through five, but then you're going to see witness continue on as another major word in the gospel of John you just kind of, you can see, and I think it's worth as you guys go through, those are some key terms just to circle, to highlight. As once told is good writers, they, they salt their works. They salt their writings with kind of concepts or key terms. So I can imagine a salt shaker. John's just kind of salting around. Every once in a while, you're going to get belief. You're going to get light. You're going to get life throughout. And that's exactly what you see. And it's done masterfully throughout this book. And it opens proclaiming, we're going to see here the essential nature of the word, which is mentioned three times just in those first verses. And it's going to go back to proving and establishing the deity of Christ. And it's going to do so first by establishing the relationship of Christ to God. Four relationships we're going to look at here that demonstrate the deity of Jesus Christ. The first one being the relationship of Jesus to God. What is his relationship to God the Father? Verses one and two. And it says, in the beginning 
was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He was in the beginning with God. So much that I've read and, and heard over the years places a large emphasis here on the Greek term, which even you probably, many of you know, if you use even the software, Bible software, logos. And I say logos, so if anyone else says logos, it's all cool. I was taught, my Greek professor said logos, and I just will say it till I die probably. There's a big fight over logos or logos. I say logos, bear with me. But in the beginning was the logos. And that is a term that was well used. And so you might look and go, what does it mean, the word? The word, the logos was with God. What does he mean by those things? And I would say, yes, there is going to be an influence here from Greek philosophy. This idea of this mediating principle between God and matter that brings existence. But that's about it. In the Greek culture, it's an impersonal thing, not a personal thing. And I think even more so, sometimes what's lost is there is clearly an Old Testament background to the gospel of John here. Even though I think his audience is primarily Gentile, I do think you can't help but go look at chapter 1-1. And if you know your Bible at all, you go, this sounds familiar. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then you get to John 1-1. And in the beginning was the word. Really is masterful. If you had to start a sermon or start a paper or start something and you go, he did what was probably the most famous because we tend to remember things written first that people would know. If you knew anything about the Jewish scripture, you'd have this idea of in the beginning. But he's not gonna discuss the God creating the heavens and the earth exactly, but he's gonna remind you that in the beginning and he's gonna make some statements about the word, which is clearly his reference to Christ. Christ who's not impersonal, but is personal and who is going to be the one in which is creating. But he wants you to know, first of all, in relationship to God, after this clear nod of Genesis 1-1, that God's revelation in human flesh existed before he became flesh. It is to say, in the beginning, before the foundations of the world, before it was created, he's saying, was, past tense, was the word, was Jesus, which is establishing, what's his relationship to God? What exists before creation? Well, only God exists, who is self-existent. And he's saying, the word is God. The word was God is a way of saying the word is God. In fact, furthermore, he goes on to say, and the word was with God. So in the beginning, before time, the word existed. The word was with God. That is, he is God. And the word was God. It's masterfully, and we're not going to go into all of understanding, but a lot of beginning Greek students work through this passage because there's ways that you could communicate it differently, but this is about the only way you could communicate it clearly where you could have a right understanding of the Trinity, a right understanding that Jesus is God, but is distinct in his person. And he does it where he says he is God, but he was the word, but he's also with God in distinction, but he also clearly is God. Confused yet? Trinity. One God that is distinct in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. I think it's helpful if you think of this discussion of thinking back and probably better than any illustration is the way it's described, the Athanasian Creed, which perhaps we don't know historically was written by Athanasius or by someone later. But it's this idea that communicates is as good as anything that when we think about how do we communicate that we have to communicate without confusing that they are in unity, but they are 
distinct as well. And we could go on and you could read a lot. And I'd encourage you because some of this study about theology and who God is, you start to go, well, why does it matter? But it goes back to who are you trusting in? Where's your belief rooted? And the more you get to know him, the more you understand how amazing our triune God is, the more you will find comfort and confidence in him. But it says this, that in the Assassination Creed, that we worship one God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity, neither blending their purses nor dividing their essence. It's very careful. Him and Arius are in the battle, defining things carefully to not fall off and somehow make Jesus less than God. For the person of the Father is a distinct person. The person of the Son is another and that of the Holy Spirit still another. But the divinity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one. Their glory equal, their majesty co-eternal. So in their divine essence, they are one in the same. I'm sure you've heard all kinds of different illustrations and they all fail to some degree. I know early on I heard the illustration of, of water, right? And you have gas and you have liquid and you have solid. That ice is frozen. And, but of course, that's just one thing changing form, right? And this is clearly communicating that they are distinct. They're existing, coexisting. Yet unity, but yet distinct. So that's an important way in which verse 1 and verse 2 clearly communicate. And he could have communicated very easily by adding an article and making it confusing. But he doesn't say the word was a God, distinct, but he word was God by emphasizing one, he was with God, distinct, but that he absolutely, second partly there of verse one, that he was God. And then again, the reminder that in the beginning, he was with God. Who is Jesus? Who is this book about? Well, he's saying in the beginning, Jesus is God. He was there in the beginning. He was associated. He is God. And he's establishing all of these signs you'll see throughout the book of John come from this foundation that Jesus is fully God. So his relationship with God, I think, proves here that he is God. But also, secondly, you're going to see his relationship to creation, the relationship of Jesus to creation. He's the active agent, it goes on in verse 3, of creation. It says, and this is not just the only place, we'll look at a couple others, but it's to say, verse 3, that all things, that is you, me, the world, the sun, the stars, the sky, all things came into being through him and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Everything came through him. He is the agent of creation from the very beginning. If you go to, say, some other places, just for example, Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, that it clearly states, For in him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And even just that statement there, that not only is all things created through him, right now he's holding it all together. And if he didn't, boom, it would go Away, he is the one who holds it all together. First Corinthians 8, 6, Paul there says, Yet for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom all things, and we exist through him. And then one last one, you think of Hebrews chapter 1, 
Verse two, that in these last days spoke to us in his son. So it used to be in the former days, verse one, the prophets, but now he's speaking through his son, whom he appointed heir of all things through whom also he had made the worlds. Everything created came in his being through Christ. Well, who has the power to create? The creator, that's it. This is the association that he is equal to God in not only just essence, but in power. He's made everything. And as we saw through the last year of Revelation that he will ultimately remake everything. The only one who has power to create, I think that's gonna be the point here in a few weeks when you look at the wine in the world turned water into wine. It's a miracle of creation. Who has the power to create? Why is this a sign showing his deity? Because only one in the beginning, God created. And he's saying, actually, understand the Trinity being God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Spirit, that the Son is the agent in which the world was, all things are made, all things are brought into being. So Jesus is fully God. I think as you're gonna see developed here in John, not only the power of God, but his uh, character and the way that he is loving and gentle and kind and doing all these things as a, as a healer. And you're gonna see those aspects of his life But even something as powerful as the creator, I think has implications that he knows what's best. Does anyone know better than the creator? You see all kinds of individuals who build things. They build companies, they build machines, they build things. And they wonder, should I have ever built it? Because people take them and they do things that they didn't intend them to do with them. And the creator's going, I didn't make it for that. I find a comfort that here, Jesus is God, the creator. He knows what's best for me. And I may go, I don't know why this or this happened, but I trust that he is not just my savior. He is that, but he is the creator. He knows exactly what is best for you and and for me. So in relationship to creation, he is the creator. So he is God. And again, it proves his deity. Thirdly, you're gonna see the third relationship is the relationship from Jesus to man. That he's not just another man. In fact, he's unique and he's distinct. He's bringing life, not the way you and I are alive today, but life that is self-existence. And he's bringing that as a light to us, which of course is amazing and is the gospel story. Look at just verse four. It says, in relation to man, in him was life. And that's the term zoe, talking spiritual life, bios, biology would be the other term for physical life, but just emphasizing that in him was life and the life was the light of men. He's self-existent because he is God, but also he is the established one who is self-sustaining life. And that life that he not only lives, but of course that is who he is, becomes the very light of the gospel because of the life that he lives and the death that he dies and his resurrection from the cross. And again, masterfully written because it's almost a little ambiguous because these are concepts of, you could say, pictures or metaphors of life and light. Because when you think of light, at least I do, I think of a flashlight and it is shining and he's using it to say, he's the light. Turn the light on, turn the light off. He shines forth. Lights, when it's dark, show you the path. You turn on your headlights so you can see where to go. He becomes the light that lights the way. But of course, he's also not just the one showing the way, that's that direction, but he's also the destination itself. It's a light that shows you go to him because that's where you find life. And particularly, it's always associated in, not always, but a lot of the times, it's associated with 
eternal. In fact, of the 36 times Zoe is used, life in the Gospel of John, 17 times it's used with eternal life. What kind of life comes from Jesus? What kind of life is he offering in the Gospel if you believe in him? It's not just today, it's not better life now, it is an eternal life that he offers. It's a living water, which if you drink, you will never need to drink anything else. But he's also not just the life, but he's the light. Think of John 8, 12. I am, this is where you just, it's amazing how much you see through John, if you understand this and read through and see it highlighted over again, that these concepts are built on that he in John 8, 12 says, I am the light of the world. And he who follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light. I think life, light, they, they're seemingly related. They're sources of something at least. They go out, they invade. Light invades darkness. Life invades death. Jesus gives true life because he is life, the source of life eternal. Of course, it's because of that. How do you receive that? It's through the clear teaching of the light of the gospel. Life eternal that giving you life, not just in here now, but the way it's phrased elsewhere, life abundant. And we're going to see all of those things built out as we go through the gospel of John. Well, fifthly, there's another relationship that shows his deity, not only his relationship to God or creation or man, but this last one is, what is his relationship to evil? What is his relationship to the darkness? Is he more powerful the answer is yes. Look at verse five. He says, and the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not overtake it. So again, he's building this, uh, this argument. He's building this picture in your mind of light being shining. That The life of Christ is a light. It's a destination. You're headed towards it. But it also shines everywhere that is dark and darkness did not overtake it. There's probably two things in the background here. One is Genesis 1.1, right? In the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. You get to, I think it's verse three, where God said, let there be light. Because it was the spirits hovering over the darkness of the water. And I think it's verse three, they says, let there be light. And it shines and life exists. And so that picture is there. But, and especially if you think of like verse one, just verse one through five, you probably have an idea of this seemingly, maybe it's not even talking about good versus evil, but the rest of the way, as you read through the Gospel of John, you start to feel it pretty quickly that light is in opposition to darkness and vice versa. So it kind of threads throughout the book. And I think it's fair to say, even here, he's beginning to develop this idea of darkness being evil. And the light shines into that evil and the evil, the darkness cannot overtake it. That is, he's more powerful than the darkness and the evil of this world. And you wonder, okay, all these things are true about him. Well, is, is his win, as it were, at the end of this gospel, his resurrection, is it final? Is there something that can overtake him? Well, not if he's truly God. And if he is truly God, there's no darkness that can overtake him because he is the creator and he is the source of all things. Anyone who's lived a little bit kind of knows light is in opposition to darkness. And there's a couple places. One is John three nineteen that says, unbelievers, they love the darkness. It's even interesting, John chapter three, think John three sixteen. this is three nineteen. they love the darkness. We'll get there, not to preach sermons too early, but Nicodemus comes in the cover of darkness, love the darkness. But John eight twelve says, believers should take no part in the darkness. 
And so it's clearly going to be a distinction carried throughout the Gospel of John that the light, which of course is the word, which Christ shines in the darkness. Darkness does not overtake it. You learn or you, you go to him, you trust in him, and there's no way in which any darkness will ever overpower. He is trustworthy. He is more powerful than any darkness that exists. And if you want to even think of implication for our own lives, if you're here this morning and you think of, man, I just feel like I'm in a dark place. Go back to Christ, who is not only life, but he is light and cling to him and run to him. Which of course is the whole pole of this gospel. Well, as you look at these four things that the relationship of Christ, I think they all demonstrate his deity, whether you think of his relationship to the Father, to creation, to man, or even to evil. It reminds me that as we began, that we are dependent beings. Whatever's true of Jesus, the word in verses one through five, the reality is, is not true of you and me. And it's not true of anyone else, which is the uniqueness of Christ and the uniqueness of his sacrifice. I am not the source of any life or any light. Yes, there's a way that I reflect the character and nature of God. I have children, right? But I'm not even that source truly because it's ultimately God who gives the soul, it gives life. But the one who is the source, the one of, who is the source of life and light, who calls to us, he's going to call to us to put our faith and trust in him. John's concern isn't so much the historicity here, and this is absolutely accurate because the Spirit's inspired it. It's 100% historically accurate, but you'll see throughout John, that's not his concern. He's not worried about following timelines. He wants you to follow the argument and his witness of who Christ is and that he is fully God so that it might convince you of the worthiness of not only the gospel, but also the worthiness of Christ. That's why we're not finding the mangers, the shepherds, the angels singing. But really, this is every bit as important as a message as any typical Luke chapter 2 gospel or Christmas message you'd ever hear. This reality that Jesus is fully God, the pre, the self-existent word. If you've not submitted your life to that self-existent one who is worthy, who is trustworthy, this is the beginning of that foundation to look at his attributes, his nature. And I can't wait to look in the coming weeks in our study. You'll see not only his nature, he is fully God and he is therefore the creator and divine power, but also his loving character. As I said, there's these seven signs throughout the gospel of John. And each one describes what Christ has done in miraculous ways. And it reveals this character that he is a creator. You think of turning the water into wine, that he's a healer, that he's a restorer, that he's a provider, that he's a protector, that he's an illuminator. He gives eyesight. And ultimately, he is a life giver. And I don't think it's any accident that as you build towards the seventh miracle in the gospel of John, it is resurrection because he is the life giver. So as you look at all of these things and as we come to the Lord's table now, what a reminder it is of the Christ that we serve, the Christ that we put as Christians, our trust in and his deity and be reminded, yes, there is that reality where he has made us heirs and there's sonship absolutely. 
but there's a way in which Christ is always and will always for all eternity be distinct and unique because he isn't just a man. He is fully God in every way. Let's pray. Father, we thank you even now as we come to the table together. We think of what it is to be reminded of the death of Christ and his resurrection, that his death, this movement we see throughout John of, of belief, even watching as we'll see over the coming months, the belief developed in the disciples, that it has to culminate to be saving faith in a complete trust in his person and his work and what Christ has done. We've come to the end of ourselves and we have absolutely agreed with you that we are sinners, that we have fallen short of your standard. As we encountered individuals like the woman at the well, that we would recognize that is everyone because we are all sinners who have fallen short of your glory. Remind us of what we were even now as we look at our own lives and we continue to strive towards the likeness of your son. Encourage us when we fail to know that there is still a grace, Lord, that you discipline those that you love, but you also are our heavenly father and we will always be and are secure in a loving relationship with you as sons. And that is you who is faithful and able to keep and to hold us. So now as we come, Lord, remind us of the lamb as we'll see even next week or next two weeks. As John the Baptist cries out, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. May we be reminded even personally of when that happened in our hearts, in our lives. The lamb who was slain for us and help us to remember and then proclaim his death until he returns. We ask this in your son's name. Amen.